Good morning. We want to welcome you here to Redeemer Church, and I'm glad that you can join us for worship on this beautiful uh, fall morning uh, here in Michigan. And uh, whether you're here with us in person or you're joining us online, uh, we're glad that you can be a part of this time together. And I uh, just want to highlight a few things uh, that are going on in our church's life. Uh, we would just let you know that in your boxes is the uh, October uh, version of our Redeemer Life, and you can check out all the different activities that are coming up for this month there and find most of the details of those things. Uh, if you are visiting with us today, we would just encourage you to text the word welcome to the number that's on the screen. It just gives us the uh, awareness that you were with us and uh, the opportunity to connect with you at other times. Uh, if you prefer paper, there's a, a connect card in the seat pocket in front of you. If you just want to fill that out and put it in the offering plate, uh, then we also uh, can know that you were with us. Uh, for those that have perhaps been at Redeemer for a number of months and are interested in our inquirers class, uh, that's going to be starting next Sunday morning in Pastor Jeff's office. Uh, if you're interested in that, uh, you can just email Tracy. Her uh, email is on the back of the bulletin. Uh, let her know that you're uh, planning to join that class, and we'd love to have you there. Uh, this is our Hospitality Sunday, so it's our time of celebrating the Lord's Supper together, but it's also a time where we, we don't have Sunday school today. It's a time we've encouraged our Sunday school teachers to enjoy time of fellowship, uh, as well as others to get connected and, and, and invite each other into your homes and just have a, a wonderful time uh, that way. Uh, this coming Friday, uh, we have our uh, Old Kids Club meeting, and that's going to be at noon on Friday. There's more information in the bulletin uh, for you to sign up and make them aware that you're going to be there and be able to plan for food. And uh, the schedule of uh, the quarterly meetings is also listed there if you want to check that out. And then I uh, just wanted to highlight that tomorrow is when uh, construction begins of our sanctuary refresh. Just thank you all for your participation and uh, fundraising for that. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, all those things coming together. But next Sunday is going to look a little different uh, as we're going to be under construction. But uh, we will still worship and the Lord uh, will guide us uh, through that process. So thank you for the team that has been putting that together. And we're, we're trusting it's going to be a, a great addition to our congregation. So. Let's take this moment now and prepare our hearts as we come before our God together. We know in the Christian life, uh, the Lord calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. But wouldn't it be great to just be able to peek into heaven for just a moment? Well, thankfully, the Lord gave us this, or gives us this opportunity uh, through the revelation that was given to John and our call to worship from Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne... And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory 
and blessing. Let us bless our great God and rejoice together that this is our Father's world. Please stand. Father, we come rejoicing in that hope of earth and heaven finally being one as you recreate uh, the earth and make the new heavens and the new earth for our eternal abode with you. And we come thankful for the glimpse that we have uh, into that hope and to that wonderful promise uh, in Revelation. And as you declare to us uh, the wonders of who you are through your word, through our time of singing your praise and through uh, the work of your spirit in our hearts, we just pray that you would help our minds to not just be set on earthly things, uh, but to recognize the Father that rules over all things, the one who orders every one of our steps, the one who is worthy of all praise, is welcoming us to your house and to around your table to sup with you and to have a time of you speaking to us as you administer to our hearts and make us more like Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.
Thank you, and you may be seated. When we think about the Lord being our salvation, we recognize that King David uh, believed that, and he wrote it in a number of different psalms uh, declaring that truth. Um, Yet there was also a time when he had pretty much most of what he needed, and he was just kind of chilling one day and walking around on the rooftop, and it was when he thought he had most things together is when he fell into temptation. And so as we assume that maybe we're trying to achieve something, achieve something, we get to a certain point and then we just want to coast. And those are the times that our temptations come to us most severely. And so, as you know, King David wrote his psalm of confession, which is Psalm 51. And uh, what we are going to use is our uh, responsive confession of sin this morning, uh, adopting his words uh, for our own. And so uh, let, let the Spirit move your heart as we respond uh, and confess our sins to our God together. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now, as a corporate body, we confess those things to our God together. There may be individual things that you want to confess to God uh, yourself in private prayer. Let us take this moment to pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we acknowledge to you how quickly we can be led to the right or to the left, assuming that we do have things together and not living in that true sense of dependency upon the grace that is needed moment by moment in our lives. Father, forgive us for the sins that we have committed in a way of making it seem as if you and your grace is not are not sufficient and yet We know in our minds that you certainly are. Help our hearts be convinced of these things and to rest in Christ alone, we pray. Amen. The Lord gives us the assurance of his pardon and his promise from Psalm 40. The psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Well, our brothers and sisters have been putting their trust in the Lord for many hundreds, even thousands of years. And so let us join our voices with theirs as we stand together and confess the words of the Apostles' Creed. Please stand with me as we confess the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, as we consider these words, we get to uh, confess to our God that we need his help simply to trust and obey. give thanks to God. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you that we can trust and obey. We thank you for the life that you have blessed us with in Jesus. Father, we thank you that you have gathered us here today to worship you, to sing songs of praise to you, and to hear your word. Father, we thank you for the saints that you have called here to Redeemer. We thank you uh, for the many blessings uh, we can be to each other. We thank you that we can encourage each other and walk with each other and show your love uh, to each other, and we thank you for that. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and showing us your grace and your mercy. We thank you for our salvation. Uh, we thank you for all the benefits that we have in Christ. 
We thank you for uh, that we can celebrate the Lord's Supper today. We thank you um, as we just confessed that Christ died and Christ rose again. And we thank you as well in the supper that we get to proclaim that Christ is coming again. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, allow our hearts and minds to focus on that, to take a look into heaven and to see and know that you are good and that one day you will call us home. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the preaching of your word. And we pray that you would be with Pastor DeBoer this morning as he brings us your word. We pray, Lord, that you would fill him with the power of the Spirit, that he would be bold in this proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would, uh, by your Spirit, also help us as we listen and hear your words, that we would know that you are a God, and that you love us, and that you care for us, and that you call us to yourself. And we pray, Lord, that we would have confidence each and every day, knowing that our Heavenly Father is looking and caring for us and guiding our steps and setting us on the sure and secure rock. And we thank you for the many provisions that you have given to us, Lord, and we pray that you would bless the tithes and offerings as they're given. We pray that uh, these funds may be used to spread the good news of the gospel here in our community and across the globe. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
want to note a couple of things before we go to our God in our time of intercessory prayer. The first is, you may have noted through the email that you received that we'll be praying for the Kite family this morning. Um, Ron passed away this uh, previous week. I just wanted to alert you to the fact that he will be uh, buried on Tuesday, October 11th. It will be a family service only. If you are interested in expressing your condolences to Mickey or to other members of their family, uh, please look up her address or phone number or whoever you want to uh, contact with her in Breeze and let her know she would certainly love to hear from you. As you can imagine, uh, this is not altogether unexpected, but still uh, very sorrowful. The other thing I wanted to note for you is on the back side of Redeemer Life, Pastor Jonathan noted that these are now in your boxes for the month of October. On the back side, you'll see that October is designated as Domestic Violence Awareness Month. This has been something that we've talked about some as a congregation. I just want to say two things about that. The first is um, there is a team of women, as you'll see at the bottom of that announcement, who have been uh, set aside by our church to help with those who may be experiencing domestic violence. Um, I didn't really say I was going to do this, but I feel no shame in doing this. I'm going to ask Mary Bont to stand because she is first in that list. Everybody turn around and look at Mary. If you're not her, sure, sure who she is, that's who she is. Um, and if you would like to talk to her, she'd be more than happy to talk to you. She also has received training, as the other women have, and they are partnering with other organizations in our community to provide help and support. The other thing I would note about that list of names is that Tracy is also um, not just on this list. She's also our office administrator. So if you call the office, she is the one that you would talk to. And let me encourage you, um, if you're experiencing that kind of abuse in your home, to please reach out to these women or to me personally or whoever might be able to help. The other thing I would note about that very quickly is that um, we believe that the gospel calls us to be those who minister to those who are weak and most helpless. And I, I would just draw on the words of a woman who came to speak to us, Darby Strickland, um, about, hmm, I'm going to say it's been about a year, maybe not quite, she said there's a big difference between a marriage that's dysfunctional and one that is abusive. In a dysfunctional marriage, people say things that are unkind to each other occasionally. That's true. Sometimes you do things you regret. That's not good, but it happens. In a dysfunctional relationship, um, even if there are times in which um, you say things that you really, really are, are not, not good, that's still not yet abuse. Abuse comes at the point at which one partner is seeking to degrade and harm the other. It's not just that you're two sinners living together, but one is really seeking to harm the other. And if that's happening, I just want to place that in your mind, that this is a church of Jesus Christ where the holiness of God is exalted and we'd love to care for those who are harmed. So let's turn to our God in prayer, shall we? Father, we cannot help when we begin this prayer by thinking about the example of Jesus while he was on earth. Those who anticipated his coming thought of him as a man who would relieve them from the political oppression that the, that the Romans were using to oppress the people of Israel. They expected a king who would deliver them, perhaps bring an army 
certainly would start a political cause that would overthrow that political power. They expected someone who would fulfill their expectations, someone who would be great and mighty, someone who would be strong and powerful. And when the religious leaders saw Jesus come, many of them turned away in disgust because he was not that kind of leader at all. In fact, he was the kind of leader that many of them were repulsed by because he did not come to change us from the outside by force, by bringing to bear the almighty power of heaven which he possessed. But he came to change humanity from the inside out by offering himself our place, that our hearts would be changed, our loyalties, our ambitions, our desires, our loves. And as we change from the inside out, our relationships would change, our desires, our vocations, our sense of community, our place in this world, all those things would change as well. And Father, we want to be followers of Jesus Christ, to exhibit in our own lives the kind of humility and care for others that Jesus showed, reaching out to those who are most afflicted, identifying with those who were harmed, not because he was seeking to be pitied, but because often in those circumstances, the effects of evil were most clearly demonstrated. He healed those who were blind, straightened and healed those who were lame. He cast out those who were struggling with evil spirits. And he came ultimately to die in our place and to rise victorious over death. And Father, we are here this morning to celebrate that truth. We may be tired, we may be weak, we may be uncertain. There may be all sorts of things that are true about our lives, but here's the one that most defines us. We look to Jesus for our help. We pray that this morning, especially as I have noted in this month in which we think about the dysfunction that may happen within homes. Father, we pray for those in our church and in our community who have experienced this kind of harm. It is very difficult to trust others when we have been belittled, when we have been perhaps physically harmed, when we have been told we have no value. Lord, we pray that you restore and build up that the love of Jesus Christ, which is a love that goes beyond any person's evaluation, would be the voice that we would hear more clearly and more loudly than any other. That we would see that our Savior is not a God who looks at us with disgust, but because of His love, His pure love, He looks at us with kindness and He seeks to draw us to Himself to protect and care for us. And we pray for those who may be experiencing that harm this morning, that you would give them the courage to reach out to Mary or to Tracy or to somebody else who might be able to help. Father, we don't want to be a community that simply thinks of itself as a victim, but we want to be honest that sin brings us to a place sometimes where horrible things are done to each other. And we pray that your Spirit would also be with those of us who tend to use our ability and our power in a way that is not consistent with the example of our Savior. We pray that the strength and power that you give would always be used to help and to encourage and to build up and not to belittle or to tear down or to hurt. 
We are thankful that is the way that you are to us, our Father. And we rejoice in the care that you give to us every day. And we pray that you would give us the strength and courage to walk in that care, whatever the circumstances that you have brought into our lives. We pray this morning, as I have also noted for the Kite family, especially for Mickey and her family as they mourn the death of Ron. Father, we are thankful this morning that in just a few minutes when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, a supper in which we confess we are drawn up to those who have gone before us into the place where Christ Himself is. That Ron and all those who have gone before us from this life to the next, all those who believe in Jesus Christ are now gathered around that throne. That they have not ceased to exist, simply go into a grave for their bodies to be, to be decayed but rather they have gone on into eternal life. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill that family and many others who may be mourning the loss of someone close to them and for whom Ron's death prompts again a new season of mourning that you would be near them. We pray for others who face surgeries in this coming week. We pray for Dave and for Bob. Lord, both brothers who would long to have relief from the pain that they're experiencing and we ask that by your kindness you would do so, that you would use the skill of the surgeons and the treatments that are prescribed in order to bring them relief. And Lord, we praise you with them that you are the God who is able to use both immediate as well as the skill of others in order to bring that healing. We pray for Zach Francois and for others in Haiti this morning. It is a nation that is destabilized by corruption. And Lord, we ask that you would protect his life and his well-being along with others who are near him. We pray for those that we heard about last Sunday night who have done so much work in Haiti, a place where there is such poverty and there are cycles upon cycles of struggle. Lord, would you use this time in order for those agencies and those people to be able to set a great trajectory forward about what it would mean for that nation to grow and to flourish, for people to be well and healthy, to prosper and to thrive. We thank you along with Luis for the surgery that she had. We thank you for the success it was, and we pray that you would continue to heal her. We pray for Claris as she is searching out who to see and what doctor may be able to give her good advice and treatment in the future. Keep her from worry. Assure her, Lord, that you do love her and that you'll protect her and keep her both in this life and in the next. We pray the same for Gail Stahl. Father, we ask that you be very near her, that every waking moment she would know that you are a God who loves her, that your love is poured out in your Son, and even in the moments when she may struggle and wonder what the future holds, you are with her always, even to the end of the age. And then finally this morning, we cannot help but pray for those who have been affected in Florida and up the East Coast with the rain and the, and the wind and with the storm surge as a result of Hurricane Ian. We are thankful for many who lived through this and now we're looking to rebuild whether their homes, their properties. We're thankful you spared their lives. We pray for other families this morning for whom there are family members and friends who lost their lives. 
And we grieve over all the property that was destroyed. Father, we ask that during this time of tremendous loss, that you would use the church of Jesus Christ to be an agency of good. Whether that is our denomination and the relief that we offer, or whether it is other Christian churches who pour out their generosity, Lord, we ask that you would use this not only in a big way, but in the lives of many, many, many people to bring them to ask and to answer the stark questions of life. Why am I here? And what does this all mean? And where can I find peace even if my home and my car have been destroyed? Father, we want to know that same truth. We may not have lived through a hurricane in the past week or so, but we all come here this morning experiencing our own joys, our own trials, our own certainties, and our uncertainties. And now we pray that as you bring us to your word, that you would fill us with the truth, that your spirit would be very present. We call upon him to help us. You have brought us to this moment for this purpose, and we pray that by his power, that purpose would be fulfilled. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for praying along with me this morning. There's a lot of many things that we prayed for that are very important. And let me just encourage you in the week to come that you continue to bring these things before the Lord. James says that the fervent, you know this, don't you? The fervent, effective prayer of the righteous man avails much. I think that might be the King James Version. When I was a young boy, that's the version we learned in church. And it always sticks right there. Yep. So let's turn now to the Word of God, shall we? And we are reading the last portion of the Gospel of John. We'll begin reading at verse 35, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 51. This is one in a series of sermons that I've been preaching, or we have been preaching, on the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John asks this question, and I want to lay it out before you again. How can you know that Jesus is, in fact, the one you should believe in and follow? It's that simple. And it was written to people who had religious knowledge. In other words, they had some awareness. But they wondered the question, can I really follow this Jesus? How do I know this is the one? How do I know it's not something else? That's why the gospel is before us. And so this morning, as we think about discipleship, we will pray that God will answer that question, if not fully, at least in part. Hear the word of God. The next day again, John, that is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the Word of God. May He bless it this morning in its preaching as in your hearing. There was something that I was reminded of this past Tuesday at the Bear Man event. If you were here, you know it was a well-attended event. A couple hundred men eating a lot of protein and carbs. And then afterward, coming into this room to hear a presentation from Jim, the bear man. As I was listening to him, it reminded me of something that happened about 15 years ago to me. It was summertime, the middle of the summer, and I was on this large bus traveling with a group of high school students along with a few other chaperones to an amusement park. It was a youth convention, and because he was about 45 minutes from the campus to this amusement park, I got to talk to the man who was sitting next to me. And I asked him, as maybe you ask, my children say I ask a lot of people this, I asked him, what is your story? And so for the next 45 minutes, he told me a story, and I'm going to summarize it for you this way. He was a man who did not grow up in a Christian home, didn't go to church, started working on the docks in New Jersey. The boss hired a new woman in the office. She was cute, he said. And because he wanted to date her, he asked her out and she said, on one condition, if you will come to church with me, we can go out. So he said that seemed like a simple thing. I went along with church, uh, with her to church. And eventually, not only did I marry this cute woman and she became my wife, but he said, in addition, I came to know Jesus Christ. I became his follower. But now he said, here's the question that I think about a lot. My daughter's also in this bus. She has grown up very differently than I did. She's always had a mom and dad, grew up in a Christian home. She's always gone to church. She's memorized the scriptures. She's gone to youth conventions and youth retreats that talk about Jesus. But he said, I often wonder this question. Does she really believe in Jesus? There came a point on Tuesday night where Jim asked that question more or less. He asked in a different way than I would ask. There's reasons for that. But he asked that question. And as he asked that question, I thought to myself, it may have been in a different form. And there are reasons why it was in a different form. But the question he asked was a good one. 
Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Or to put it slightly differently in the language of this passage, do you see that Jesus is the Messiah? We can talk a lot about the Bible. We can talk about Jesus and all that he is. But there has to come a point at which we simply ask each other, do you believe in Jesus? Do you see what I see? And this morning I'm going to ask you that question. Do you see what I see? And if you're wondering what it means to answer yes, this passage describes four ways in which a disciple of Jesus Christ responds to him. And so if you're wondering that question, am I, do I see him as the Messiah? Here is a fourfold test that you can run in your own heart, in your own mind, as you seek to answer that question. And it parallels these questions. The men who saw Jesus in this passage and heard him and then responded in what I would describe as faith. Let me ask you this question. What does it mean for you to hear the call of Jesus to see him and respond in faith? The first thing a disciple does, one who hears the call and responds in faith, is found in verse 38 of our passage. There it says, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, look, there is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples who were following John the Baptist all of a sudden leave John the Baptist and they follow Jesus instead. And then Jesus turns to them and he asks, What are you doing? Why are you following? What are you seeking? And did you notice the answer of the two disciples? They do not say, we are seeking to understand who the Lamb of God is who takes away the sin of the world. They do not answer by saying, we want to know who the Messiah is. John the Baptist, our rabbi, said you're the one. No, they answer and they say, we're wondering where you're staying. Now, have you ever had this experience where one of your little ones walks into the kitchen and there are cookie crumbs all over his little face and you ask the question, so what have you been doing? And he says, I was in my room. (laughs) And the answer gives away the heart of the person who answers. There's a similar sort of thing going on here. These disciples are uncertain about who Jesus is. And when they ask where he is staying, Jesus responds by taking them with him to the place where he was staying. And the text notes that it was late in the afternoon, but they spent the rest of the day with him. What did they do? I think it is similar to what we read at the end of the Gospel of Luke. That these two disciples were with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And when they came to the place where they were staying, were staying, Jesus explained to them who he was. Starting at Moses and the prophets, he unfolded to them all that he was. I believe that's what Jesus is doing here. And his disciples, rather than just asking him, who are you? They want to be where Jesus is to learn from him. And what I would suggest to you first this morning is that if you ask yourself the question, am I a disciple of Jesus Christ, the first way for you to test your own answer to that question is by simply evaluating, do you want to be where Jesus is? 
Notice that's a different question than asking you, do you know what the Bible says? Have you been to church a lot? Do you live a good moral life? Do other people consider you a Christian? Are you a moral person? Do other people respect you? Did you grow up in America? Those are different questions. Do you want to be with Jesus goes beyond all of those things to ask you the most basic question in life. It's really a question of your first love. Do you want to be with the one who matters most to you? I often think to myself, it is far easier to be an observer than to be a believer. It is much easier to say than to follow. And so the question I'm asking you this morning is are you interested in more than merely watching, observing, but not engaging? If you're only interested in the observation, then you're probably not a disciple. The disciple wants to know Jesus and be with him because they sense that Jesus is more than simply another person, another rabbi, another hope. He is the one who is the Savior, as John the Baptist said, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you want to be with Jesus? The second question I have for you comes from verses 40 and 41. In verses 40 and 41, we read that one of those who had heard Jesus speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And Andrew, immediately after hearing who this Jesus was and learning about him, goes to find his brother, Simon is his name, and says to him, we have found the Messiah, and then he brings him to Jesus. Andrew is so struck with Jesus and what he has learned that he goes to his brother Simon and he says, we have found the Messiah. Now I have to be a little careful how loud I say that. I do recall early in ministry when I was speaking really loudly about something. <laughs> a young woman after the service with some young children said, just be careful how loud you talk, you're scaring my children. <laughs> so I don't want to do that. <laughs> but I do want to give this its proper force. You would not say we have found the Messiah. Like when I was getting into my car after exercising a Wednesday morning, I looked down and I saw a dime there. And one of my workout partners was getting at his car. He said, hey, look, I found a dime. I said it just like that. This would be closer to, we're expecting. Or we have great news to share. Only this is even more significant than that. Because do you realize that for generations upon generations, the Israelites have been anticipating the arrival of the Messiah to the point that if you were in Israel at this time, you would have discovered there were many people claiming to be the Messiah. It turns out you had to gather followers and you could tell a variety of people, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one everybody's looking for. Now be honest, doesn't that appeal to you a little bit? To be the answer, it appealed to a lot of people at this point. But Andrew is not saying to his brother, we found another person claiming to be the Messiah. No, Andrew is telling his brother, listen, we have found the Messiah. We have found the final one. This is the one we have all been hoping for. In the Old Testament, kings were set aside as the anointed. So were prophets and priests. 
they all sort of had the Messiah label. But the sense that the Old Testament gives is that the Messiah, the final Messiah, the hope of Israel, really the hope of all mankind, when he came into the world, he would be more than David, more than Isaiah. He would be more than any priest. He would be a prophet, priest, and king together. And he would be greater and more majestic than any of those ever hoped to be. And that's what Andrew is telling his brother, Jesus is. Now you're wondering, what is the question to ask yourself here? If you long to be with Jesus, the response of a disciple is to tell others, I have found him, will you come and see him too? Let me just explain it this way. As you know, I love children. I love my children. They're getting past the age of doing the following, but I still love it when it sometimes happens. You have a little boy or girl, they go outside and they find a frog. And you would swear by the way your child brings that frog into the house, and maybe you don't log frogs in the house. We do. They bring the frog into the house. You would swear this is the most majestic, the most precious. It's the only frog of this sort in the entire history of the world. Look, I found a frog. For people who believe in Jesus Christ, they have found something that cannot be contained. I know this from a number of friends who did not grow up as Christians, and they became Christians, they went through, what do they call it, the cage stage? Where they can't believe that anyone would not also believe. I have found the Messiah. I have found the hope of the world. He has changed my life. I am transformed. How could you not believe with me? Now that may be overdone. But it is a natural part of the Christian life of a follower of Jesus Christ to want to tell others about the Messiah, the hope that we have found. Do you find this desire in your heart as a disciple to tell others about the Messiah who has come? The third thing that is noted here about a disciple is found in verse 42. A disciple is changed by Jesus. You can see this. When it says the next day, Jesus decided to go to, to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now you'll notice in the passage that follows that Jesus is speaking to the second set of these brothers. He is finished speaking in verse 42. I read verse 43 to Simon and Andrew. Simon... It is noted in verse 42, he is the brother of Andrew. His name, given name, was Simon. But when Jesus meets him, he calls him immediately Cephas. That is Peter. And you'll notice how John, which was written to Jews and some Gentiles, takes special note to make sure we understand what this means. Not only does he say your name is Cephas, John goes on to say, understand everyone, that means Peter. Why is that so significant? It may seem like a strange thing to do when you meet someone to give them a new name, unless you're a construction worker, I'm guessing, where everybody gets a nickname. 
But we don't usually rename people. But if you follow the scriptures from the Old Testament following, you will know there's a history to renaming in the Bible. And there's also a future anticipated reality to this renaming. Think of the Old Testament if you're familiar with it. Remember, Abram was renamed to Abraham, the father of many nations. Jacob was renamed Israel. Why were these men renamed? They were renamed because God had a particular purpose in their lives. Abram was taken from Ur of the Chaldees, living as an absolute pagan apart from the creator God, and God called him and then renamed him Abraham to become the father of many nations. Jacob was the deceiver. He was the one who literally grasped his brother's heel, which was sort of the symbolic demonstration of his deception. He would trip his brother up over and over, and God chose him and changed him that he became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. For those who would read John's Gospels later, John's Gospel later, they would say to themselves, oh look, Jesus is doing the same thing God did in the Old Testament. He is calling Peter to do something particular and he will change him to do that work. When you fast forward in the Gospels, you will note, I'm going to note from the Gospel of Matthew, that later on Jesus says to Peter, You are Peter, you are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. Peter, if you follow him in the Gospels, was a man who was impulsive. He was a man who denied Jesus, and yet Jesus calls him to be a disciple. This change of name early in the Gospel of John is meant to indicate to the readers and to us the disciples that Jesus calls will be changed by him as they follow him. They are not just called as they are and always will be. No, they are called and Peter specifically is given a new name and we see throughout Peter's life and then after even Jesus ascends that Peter is a changed man by his interaction with Jesus. What does this indicate about discipleship? You do not enter into discipleship, my friend, being a disciple of Jesus, expecting to remain the same. You expect you'll be changed. Sometimes in ways that are difficult and painful, sometimes wonderful, joyful ways. But no disciple of Jesus ever comes to him to be with him without being with him affecting who they are. And that is also true for us. You are being transformed. The Bible says in the New Testament, from one degree of glory to the next, the grace of God that saves is the grace of God that also changes. And He changes us as we are with our Savior, as we follow Him, and we learn from Him. Which brings me to the third thing I want to, or rather the fourth thing I want to say to you this morning about being a disciple The disciple wants to be with Jesus. The disciple brings others to know Jesus. And the disciple is being changed by Jesus. Those three things. But typical in John fashion, he saves the best for last. Those three things are all significant parts of being a disciple of Jesus. 
And you can ask yourself the question, have I seen this Jesus and who he is? Is this true of me as a disciple? But all of that is built on what Jesus says, what the gospel records at the end of this section. The largest section of this chapter, of this, the, the largest portion of this section, I should say, I haven't really explained. It is the interaction between Jesus, Philip, and Nathaniel. Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, this second set of brothers, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's almost identical, more fully expanded to what happens earlier in this account. We found the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in this place, Philip is telling Nathanael, we have found the Messiah. So Nathanael comes to Jesus. And Jesus sees in verse 47, Nathanael coming and says to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says to him, How do you know me? That's a great question. You've ever had that experience where you meet someone at a party and they say, Oh, hello, good to see you again. And you say to yourself, I don't know you. How long can you fake it? How long can you try to figure it out? In this case, Jesus and Nathanael had never met. It was not as though they had a previous meeting and Nathanael just forgot. No, Jesus sees Nathanael in a way no one has ever seen him before. He says, I saw you under a fig tree. I saw you there. And Nathanael said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. No one can do that except someone who is the Messiah. And here in the Gospel, for the first time, we have the supernatural power of Jesus on display. Something that will be seen over and over and over again. But now listen to this. Here's where I want to draw your attention. Verse 50 says, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now I've said to you, in typical John fashion, the story builds to this point. And you might say, what is he talking about? To understand Jesus's, you will see greater things than these. You need to understand the reference he makes in the last verse about the heavens open and angels ascending and descending. It seems to be taken or drawn from Genesis chapter 28 where Jacob is fleeing from his brother. He has stolen the birthright and he is fleeing away. And as he's fleeing away to go to his uncle, he is in fear for his life. He doesn't know what the future is going to hold. And God brings him in a dream to a place where there is a ladder or maybe a stairway. It's hard to translate exactly what it is going up and down between earth and heaven and angels ascending and descending. And remember what Jacob says when he wakes up? He says, this truly indicates that God is with me. And when I return to this place, I will mark it to say, God is with me. I know that God is with me. Now in this passage, Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, and he's saying to you and I as well, at the very heart of being a disciple is knowing that Jesus is the one through whom 
we see God himself. Let me explain to you why I'm saying that. Jacob saw the angels ascending and descending between earth and the heaven. In Jesus Christ, heaven has come down to earth. That's how the Gospel of John opens. And the Word was with us. He came to tabernacle among us to live with us, to be with us. Jesus is not out there somewhere. Heaven is not removed from us. It is not Jesus simply desiring good things for us. No, Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, do you want to see with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you want to see who I really am? Here's who I really am. Your Old Testament story about Jacob, your father, is fulfilled in me. I am heaven come down to earth. I'm here. I'm with you. And what you have seen me do, what you've heard me do as I saw you under the fig tree, that's nothing compared to what you will see me do as the Savior of the world. Now do you see what Jesus is saying? It's a powerful thing. And here is the most important thing about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The other three things I mentioned all fall apart and are relevant apart from this thing that Jesus says to Nathaniel. If you do not understand, if you do not believe that Jesus is the one who has come from heaven above, God himself, he is the answer to sin, to come down into this world, to be with us, to do the greatest thing imaginable, to deliver us from the power of evil. If you do not see that and know that and believe that, you cannot be a disciple. It simply is not true. You may have noticed how many times in this account... Some version of C comes up from the very beginning of this passage to the very end of this passage. John uses C or some synonym for C over and over again. Why does he do that? He does that as if to impress upon us by the choice of his language that he wants these disciples to communicate to you in their story the necessity of you seeing Jesus. It is not enough for you this morning to hear these words and say, ah, nice sermon. So glad that you helped me understand that passage. That's good. I'm hoping that's true. Especially that it's a good sermon. (laughs) What's really necessary this morning is that you would come to see this Jesus Not just with your eyes, but with your heart. Because here's the reality of life. Every single one of us is a follower of some sort. When I started reading this passage, meditating on it, and creating this sermon, it was Tuesday of this week. In my conclusion, I wrote, Every one of us is a follower of something That's the essence of discipleship, being a follower. I happen to follow college football, the Iowa Hawkeyes, and on Tuesday I wrote, my Hawkeyes lost to Michigan. And they did. Maybe it's not college football that you follow. Maybe it's not even sports that you follow. But all of us are built in some way to follow something, to find our meaning in that thing that we follow, to follow after, to aspire to the thing 
the person that we follow. It's simply built into us. It's impossible for you to say, I do not follow, I do not long for, there's nothing beyond myself that I need. No, you do. In this passage, Jesus tells us who it is that we're called to follow. It's not college football, first of all. It's not famous people. It's not my parents who I love a great deal. It's none of those things that first and foremost I am called to follow. I am called to see Jesus Christ for all that he is. And then as disciple, as his disciple, to follow him in the fullness of that call. I'm going to ask you this morning very simply, do you see this Jesus? And when you see this Jesus, do these four things that this passage reveal, do these four things characterize your life? If it doesn't, if this passage doesn't characterize your life, let me use the language that is found in this morning's sermon title, Jesus is Calling. And He is calling you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are grateful this morning for the truth of Your Word. We want it to be bold, to be clear. But most of all, we want to step out of the way so that the power of the Word itself is made clear. I don't know, of course, how each person comes here, what joy or sorrow they bear with them. The people they follow, the things that are valuable or most significant to them, Lord, you know that in a way that I never could. But I also believe that you've brought us here in this moment for a specific purpose. And it is not simply to hear a nice sermon and sing some beautiful songs, but it is as these disciples, these first disciples experienced, it is to come and to see Jesus and then to become his follower, his disciple in a way that transforms us, the way that we long, what we say, what we do, and gives us the hope and the peace that each one of our hearts long for. Father, would you use what has been said here for the glory of Jesus Christ? Amen. Would you stand, please, and sing with me this song, Jesus Messiah.
As you can see in the order of worship, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now, and I want to explain a little bit about it before we celebrate. In front of me, as you can see in these trays, are ordinary bread and ordinary juice. There's nothing physically or chemically different about these things than what you could buy in the grocery store somewhere. The significance of the Lord's Supper does not lie in the uniqueness of the elements, that is, the things we're going to eat and drink. What makes the Lord's Supper what it is, is the promise that attaches to these elements. And the promise that Jesus has given that attaches to these elements, these ordinary things that we eat, is that they represent to us His body and His blood poured out for us, shed for us. And He has promised as certainly as we taste and as we smell these things, so certainly is His love given to us. You might put it this way. The Lord's Supper is not meant to replace the sermon that we just heard. It's meant to complement it. As you heard with your ears, now you can taste and you can smell with the other senses of your body that the truth that you just heard comes with the promise of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 6, we read these words, Jesus explaining to those crowds who probably knew about the events that we just read about in John chapter 1, the calling of these disciples, Jesus claiming, I will do greater things than you've ever seen. Jesus says to those disciples and probably crowds who knew that truth, He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. (laughs) The next thing it says in John 6 is the Jews then grumbled. They said, Jesus, how can you say you're the bread of life come down from heaven? They were thinking the Old Testament where Jesus provided for the Israelites in the desert with manna, its bread that literally fell down from heaven. Jesus is saying to them, you know that great miracle of the Old Testament, here's the truth, that's nothing compared to who I am. That was an arrogance, it wasn't hubris that Jesus was expressing, it was truth. All the miraculous ways in which God cared for the Old Testament people pale in comparison with the gift of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's gift come to heaven, uh, come from heaven to us to suffer and to die in our place. And today, if you believe that, if you believe that is true, if you are struggling to fight against your own sin and to follow after this Savior, then this supper is for you. This is the place where Christians come and are confirmed in that truth. Paul later on says in 1 Corinthians that this is not the place, however, for those if you don't know. Or if you are living in rebellion against God, you may have an external appearance as though everything's fine, but in the inside, in your private life, something is horribly wrong. The Bible says, if you eat and drink as though everything is right, as though you're good with God, when in fact you're living in rebellion against Him, unrepented rebellion, you actually do harm to yourself by coming to the supper. So let me encourage those who are weak, those who are struggling, to come to Christ. But those who are proud, those who are arrogant, those who are unrepentant, 
to stay away. Instead, while the elements are being passed, whether you are too young to participate, you've not yet confessed your faith in Christ, or what I've said no longer or does not express the truth of who you are, just let the elements pass. I'd be happy to talk with you or one of the other men who will serve you the supper would be happy to talk with you and confirm in your life the reality of the gospel promises. Now here, what the New Testament says about this bread and this juice. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. And the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. And when he gave him thanks, he said, This is my body, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The elements will now be distributed. Please just hold them in your hand. And after everyone's received, we'll eat together.
Our Lord Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Would you pray with me? Our Father, it is out of your kindness to us that as certainly as we taste and smell these things which are ordinary objects and are set aside for a divine purpose, it is your kindness to us that leads you to accommodate the elements to our hearts. We ask, Lord, that your Spirit would fill each person who is here to give us not only an understanding of your truth, but to lead us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would find in Him our hope and our fulfillment. We ask that you would use the elements as set aside by your Spirit to draw us to Jesus Christ, to confirm to us that His death was really died in our place and His victory over sin and His resurrection is our victory, that sin no longer holds domination over any of us. Father, we praise You and thank You for this precious gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Receive this blessing from your God. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.